So I'm sure many of you have had the experience of explaining something to a child and you think that you have uh, communicated a particular set of facts, but when you hear the child explaining that situation to another person, you realize that a lot of gaps have been filled in uh, by the child's creative imagination. The child has expectations and desires and decides how he wants what you have said to come about. Uh, This is the case, as we're going to see, uh, with God's people in hearing the words of the prophets, because God has disclosed in the prophets only in part what he was going to be doing in the future. And so his people had certain expectations, sometimes well beyond or different from what God had expressed. And we're also going to see that as believers in the New Covenant, there are things that uh, we do not know the details of how they're going to unfold. and So we should not make the same mistakes as uh, the Israelites did in interpreting God's Word. But we know that we have a clear and present Word that God has spoken to us, and that all we need for life and godliness is set forth in the Scriptures. So this word, to, through the prophet Zechariah, we're, we're jumping right into the middle of this book, uh, so there's not a huge amount of context, but so you understand broadly, this is a people who have been returned from exile. And they expected, upon return of exile, a restoration of their kingdom and so on. They're, but the neighbors are still oppressing them. They're still paying significant tributes Uh, to their neighbors who control them as uh, suzerain kingdoms. And they're experiencing violence still from some of their neighbors. So they've been in exile, they've returned from exile, but they're still waiting for a final deliverance. And so this word from God comes to them in that setting. Uh, It begins by saying that there's an oracle or a, a word, a message or burden that has come from the Lord and it's, it says it against the land of Hadrach in your, in your translations, but probably in the land of Hadrach, uh, because it says there's a resting place uh, that it is hiding out, essentially. It's uh, encamped in, uh, in, in Hadrach and Damascus. Think of the word personified almost like a squatter that's just there, uh, taking up space, not doing anything, but just sitting there. And the people are waiting. Again, your translation says, For the Lord has an eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel. That should actually be the other way around. Mankind and all the tribes of Israel have an eye on the Lord, are waiting to see what he is going to do. Uh, This word is sitting there, and so there's an expectation from the people, what is going to happen next? Well, uh, this... uh, begins by talking about a couple of cities that border northern Israel. That's Hadrach, uh, Damascus, and then on the coast, Tyre and Sidon. These are, Sidon is uh, both, they are both coastal cities, wealthy port and trade cities, and they have become very wise, especially in their own sight, but they are powerful nations with, uh, with uh, or cities with a military that, uh, a navy almost, That will be mentioned later. But suddenly, the word gets moving. 
uh, and it comes against Tyre. Tyre has built herself a rampart, which means an impenetrable fortress wall, essentially. Something like this is mentioned in the book of Nahum as well, uh, uh, where this Assyrian city has built itself what appears to the rest of the world to be uh, an invincible wall. And she has collected so much money that there's more silver than there is dust on the streets. There's more gold than there is mud on the streets of Tyre. Extremely wealthy. Essentially untouchable. Safe, secure, mega wealthy nation. But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions. And this verb is something that's used in Nahum as well to describe the stripping of the harlot in 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 public to, to shame her, which is the uh, Assyrian uh, overlords against uh, Judah. But here it says that the Lord will strip her of her possessions. So she'll go from wealthy to in poverty, strike down her power on the sea. Those boats are no longer going to be floating, but will be sitting on the bottom of the ocean. And we should be burned by fire. And the neighboring nations like Ashkelon, and Gaza, Ekron are going to see it and they will be terrified. Why? Because they were also wealthy and powerful cities. And so they thought we, we can be confident because we are like this city as well. But when they see this pinnacle city being destroyed, they will go into total panic. So the Lord has moved further south. Uh, from, from the north and is now moving on a march, a divine march down uh, towards uh, Ashkelon and Gaza too. So this is the Philistines. All of these cities mentioned in verses 5 and 6, are so Ashdod, etc., Gaza, Ashkelon, these are all Philistine cities. So th that's why they called it like the, the pride of Philistia. So not only is he going to destroy places in the north, but he's going to march south and destroy these places as well. Uh, these great cities will be low, laid low because what they trusted in was military power and wealth. You see, the Lord is going to confound their hopes. He's going to show that what they had confidence in was actually completely powerless. What's interesting, though, is we get to verse 7, and now this divine warrior seems to turn into a dentist. Because he says, I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. So he will rinse Philistia's mouth with Listerine and he will floss their teeth till they are pearly whites. What is this dental imagery? This is talking about idolatry. First, the blood in its mouth refers to the the blood sacrifices that are drunk to the, the swine gods by the Philistines. So they, they actually they slaughter animals, drain the blood, and drink it in part of a, a, a porcine um, kind of slaughter sacrifice. And they eat meat offered to idols. So that's why it talks about the abominations from between its teeth, this impure... Uh, evil, sacrificial meat that they've eaten. So what does it mean that God is going to come and cleanse their idolatry away? Isn't that interesting? Because he said that he's going to humble these cities and destroy them. 
But yet, he's going to do some kind of purifying of their idolatry so that it too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah, and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. See, Tyre is totally annihilated, but Philistia, after their judgment, is going to become part of God's covenant people. Somehow, God's grace is... is Randomly moving outward from Israel uh, to another people. What could this mean? Why is this in the middle of this prophecy? Well, we're not yet told, but the Lord then moves even further south. And it says that he, after, uh, after coming down from the north, will encamp at my house as a god. Uh, his house is his temple. So the Lord has marched from the north uh, to the south where the temple is. Judah, um, and he will be there so that no one will march to and fro. That means uh, no more uh, cycles of, of people coming and attacking God's people. No, oppression, no oppressor shall again march over them, for now I see with my own eyes. So the Lord is going to take up residence in his temple, and as a warrior king is going to protect his people. That's part of what the king does is he protects his people, protects and secures the borders. So this is essentially a military parade where the powerful conquering king has come from the north, the Lord coming in fury, and then to establish peace for his people in their land. This means a lot to the people who are hearing this oracle, because remember, they're being oppressed from the north and from the surrounding kingdoms. And they're in the south, in the promised land, where they expect peace. And God is promising that he, as the divine warrior, is going to come on the march and, and bring peace. So what we should see in, these, in the first kind of seven or eight verses is, firstly, this group of cities is a, a, a historical bunch of Israel's enemies including the Arameans to the northwest, the Phoenicians in the northwest, and the Philistines who are in the southwest. And somehow during this march, the Lord also becomes a redeemer of one of these people. But the conversion of foreign nations was not part of how Israel originally understood God's promises to them. And here we see the start of some, some changes. But in terms of what this teaches us is that the nations who rely on their own strength and wealth as if that makes them like gods are in for a great surprise. And God's people can always have confidence that God is going to vindicate those who set themselves up as enemies of God's people. It also gives us a, a, a touch forward on what's going to happen in the day of the Lord. That those who are of, of kings and high places, who, th who see themselves as like gods, Revelation says that they will hide in the caves and cry that the rocks of the mountain will fall on them to hide them from the face of the wrath of the Lamb. Because they will discover that what they trusted in had no power whatsoever at, at the coming of the day of the Lord in his military power. And so the prophet's rebuke of these nations and their self-reliance is a, also a reminder 
to Judah that God would fulfill his promise in a, in a different way that they expected. Because in Zechariah 4.6 is that well-known but often misused phrase, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And so it's in, it's in this context that we understand God is going to accomplish his purposes, uh, not immediately by force or strength, but by his spirit who will also enfold surrounding nations into his promise. Well, the king has settled now uh, in the north, this warrior kind of king. And so this prompts an instruction from the Lord to his people. Rejoice, shout aloud. That is the right response to God being in our midst. To sing. And that's why it's an important part of what we do on the Lord's Day is God is here. He has encamped among his people. And so we exult. There's times when something wells up in you and all you can do is to sing and to praise and to give thanks. And that's what we do here. We praise God because he's among us. We sing exultantly. So the command comes. The king is coming. So rejoice greatly. Shout aloud, daughter of Zion, daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Well, the conquering king is the Lord who returns to Zion. But now we're told that your king is coming. So who is this king? What is he like? Is, is it the Lord? Is it a, another king? Is it the Davidic king? Is it a divine king? Is it a human king? Well, these are the kinds of questions that the hearers of this prophecy were probably wondering. What's especially strange is, I mean, they would understand uh, righteous and having salvation is he, because God's king is supposed to rule in righteousness, and, and God will save his people through this king. They all understand that. But then comes this contrasting statement, humble and mounted on a donkey is this king. Uh, Humble is the word used for humble here is usually and mostly deployed with the meaning poor, having no material resources, which would be a striking, lowly. This would be a striking thing for someone who's expecting a great military warrior who is coming. Secondly, he's mounted on a donkey. Our donkeys... Firstly, just worth just clarifying how to translate these here. But so this is the normal word for a donkey, mounted on a donkey. But the translation is not quite right on a colt, the foal of a donkey, because a male donkey is a jack and a female donkey is called a jenny. So a jack is just the son of a jenny. So colt is incorrect because jack has no reference to age. So you can basically just say on on a donkey, on a male donkey, the foal of a female donkey. That's, that's kind of how to translate that. But the, the, the idea is donkeys are commonly used for uh, workforce, like a physical labor, but kings commonly rode on them too in the ancient Near East. So this is not what's a, a surprising image that a king would be on a donkey. 
But normally, a king riding on a donkey is associated with peace. This would be odd, because having seen this divine warrior march, they'd expect this king to come in on the, on the animal of, of war, which is what? The horse. That a king would come riding to battle on a horse. But here, he has, he's coming with a sign of peace. Uh, there is also a bit of a Davidic connection here because these words for Jack and Jenny allude to Genesis chapter 49, verse 11. A royal promise there was given to Judah. Remember, Judah tied a Jack to a vine and a Jenny to a choice vine. And so the, the people here are being reminded that this king is the king that God has promised them in the line of David. But they expect this Davidic king to rule and to bring them military conquering over the other nations. So that's what's very surprising, because next the Lord says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So this is not quite what we expect. If this military king is going to come and speak a word of peace, that's a bit confusing. And he's going to speak peace to the other nations. And his rule will be from one side of the earth to the other. It will be a total rule. But to destroy the, the tools of war... He is, going to, he is still going to rule and, and bring peace. So they're wondering, how, how is this kind of force going to be applied, but yet peacefully in such a way that peace is spoken to the nations? Well, it turns out that the king, who seemed to be the Lord coming down, uh, marching, is actually the Davidite, the king coming in the line of David. And next in verse 11... It says, as also for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Now, when he says, as for you, that's um, a personification for uh, Zion or Jerusalem, right? That was told to rejoice greatly and, and shout aloud. Uh, what we are to understand, it's not super clear what waterless pit is here, but probably because of the use of pit to refer to Sheol uh, in the Old Testament, and it's being a dry, parched place. This is probably a reference to death. So uh, I will save your, um, your prisoners from the waterless pit, which is, is death. So there's this connection with death here. And the most likely thing being referred to here is the people who are still trapped in the Mesopotamian diaspora. So Although a, a large number have come back out of exile, there are still those who are, are trapped among the foreign nations. So the Lord is going to come and perform a jailbreak for the people still in captivity. And how does he do it? And why does he do it? Because of the blood of my covenant with you. Now, the blood of the covenant is that phrase is only found once elsewhere in the Old Testament, and that's in Exodus chapter 24. This is the ratification ceremony 
of God's covenant with Israel, where they promise to do what he has said and he has promised to be their God. So this, this sacrifice seals the covenant to make God's people his people and to make God their God. That's probably what they would have understood. But the, promise, the problem is that promise is not connected with these realities. So the blood of my covenant must be the blood of a new covenant that needs to take place. And so by this new covenant of the blood of a new covenant, God is going to release these trapped people in the pit. And so the, what comes and follows that is return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope, in light of that news. The way you can understand this maybe bit, a bit better, it's a bit smoother. Return to your stronghold, O hopeful prisoners. Because they're not being taken captive by hope. This is captives who are hopeful. And so they're to focus on a future hope, a promised deliverance that the Lord has spoken of here. And then the Lord says, I declare that I will restore to you double. Uh, that's, again, better translated repay because it's an allusion to Jeremiah 16 and Isaiah chapter 40, which, in which God promised to repay their sin, uh, their iniquity, twofold. And what he means by that is not to give them double judgment for their sin. What he meant is, I will fully re remove sin. I will make payment uh, twice, twofold. So I will completely cover the debt of your sin. And this puts grammatically the sentence in parallel with the blood of my covenant. So through this mysterious covenant of blood that's going to be shed, God will pay for ransoming people from their death and where they are trapped as prisoners. Sin will be paid for and people will be set free. Because remember, why were people in exile in the first place? Because the nation had committed gross idolatry against God. And so to ransom these prisoners from their exile is to bring about the forgiveness or the release of them from the debt of their sin. But next, we have this sudden flip when we think that we're getting the sense of what's happening because we've just heard about peace, but now Judah is being bent as his bow and Ephraim as his arrow. And then he says, he will use the nations. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. And the Lord uh, comes forth in la language of judgment that's right throughout the, the prophets, that his arrow will go forth like lightning, that he will sound the trumpet, that he will storm forth on the whirlwinds to bring justice uh, from the south. So with these lightning bolts of his heavenly army, they will strike down like David struck down Goliath. They shall devour and tread down the sling stones. They will drink and roar as if drunk with wine and be full like a bowl. Look at this imagery, drenched like the corners of the altar. What is that a reference to? The priest flicking the blood of the sacrifice on the altar. That altar was covered with 
dried blood. So there's a a vengeance and a justice that's somehow coming at some point in history as well. And amidst all of that judgment, that turmoil, the war that is happening, verse 15 says, The Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of heaven, he will protect them through this judgment and make them the victors. Those who were victims will become victors through God's redeeming work of judgment. Verse 16, on that day, the Lord their God will save them. So what did Greece ever do? (laughs) Uh, Well, we don't know exactly because it says here, I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece. We are not sure, but we do know that the Lord will protect his people as a flock Right, it says in verse 16, as the flock of his people, for like jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. So even as he judges the nations, as a result, there will be a purging of wickedness and a creation such that his land is filled with his people. And this imagery is spectacular because the sheep on the side of the mountain to the Lord is like jewels on a crown. So each of, each of you who he has saved from your sins, it, he sees as with the same beauty as a jewel on a kingly crown. For you are the result of his kingly saving work that glorifies him and shines with the glory of his mercy, which is shone on your faces in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what's being prophesied here. And this, when we hear this message... Should we not proclaim how great is his goodness and how great is his beauty? Right? It, 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 and on, in this land, which magnifies him in his goodness and his beauty, it says that grain shall make the young men flourish and wine, new wine shall make the young woman flourish. Grain and wine, these superabundance language, uh, you find throughout the prophets as well. And that's a reference to the new creation. So... All in this, in this text, we have the Lord coming as warrior. We have a Davidic king. We have a future catastrophic judgment. We have the proclamation of peace to the nations. And we have the new creation all compressed into this prophecy from the Lord in Zechariah chapter 9. His blessings will bring food and flourishing and the wine of gladness to these people in the new creation. Now they're going to see in his land as being the promised land. But we who are on this side of the cross understand that this ultimately is a reference to the new creation, the superabundance that we will have with God forever. So as returned exiles, the people were waiting for the Lord to come and deliver them and to bless them. They were expecting to rule among the nations. And they were confounded because they've, been, they've come to their homeland and they have a temple there. But they have no king. This is topsy-turvy. It makes no sense to them. So they're probably wondering at the end of this, well, you've promised us a king. But, and we know that it's going to be a Davidic king. But when will we get this king? And when is this blood the new covenant? 
They are still prisoners for some time, but prisoners of hope. You see, even for his people here, God's answers to their prayers and cries for deliverance were not quite what they were expecting. They would have had it one way, but the Lord is always going to do what is wise and perfect, for he has no other counselors uh, but himself. See, the king they expected is kind of different. The, the Lord is depicted as a warrior, but now the king is poor. Yes, he'll reign from sea to sea, but he's going to come and speak a message of peace. Well, as we shoot forward in redemptive history, as we read from Matthew chapter 21, one week before his crucifixion, the Lord Jesus mounts a, a donkey and rides into Jerusalem. And what did, the, what did the crowds cry? Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And so they did rejoice as Zechariah had commanded them to. Right, the Lord through Zechariah had commanded them to. And they saw, the people whose eyes were opened saw what was going on. But even they didn't fully get it. Because when asked who he was, they said, Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth. They said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which is true. But Jesus was not just the Messiah. He was also the warrior God king sent in the line of David. So what they should have said as well is, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, but blessed be the Lord who is among us. You see, they quote the first part of the fulfillment of this prophecy. Yes, that their expected king is coming, uh, humble and mounted on a donkey. But this was not the, the king that they expected. They just assumed that he was a human king who'd been sent. Yes, a Messiah figure, but only a human king. But this king, Jesus, was both son of God and son of David. But what we couldn't quite tell in Zechariah and what the crowds couldn't quite tell when Jesus rode in is that a covenant blood was needed for this double repayment. The people, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, didn't think that they were in, in death, in Sheol. If you'd said, you're in exile, they would have said, what do you mean? We're in Jerusalem. We seem to be experiencing peace. But verse 11 is what was key. That he would come and set prisoners free. And that's what the Lord Jesus came. He came into Jerusalem riding a donkey, not to sit on a throne, but to be hung on a cross for his people. He, this king, needed to be completely poor. And he went to the cross owning absolutely nothing. Even his garments they cast lots for. And he was stripped and crucified naked with nothing. 
on the cross. And so he didn't have even the wealth of the blood of his life, which was then shed as he died. And with a double payment, a double repayment of his blood, he set his people free from their waterless pit, their prison of death. And this releasing of captives, if you think about how it spoke about it as the Messiah, was a defining aspect of his role as the Messiah. But the dead included those who were walking around because they were dead in their trespasses and sins. And so Jesus' new covenant blood liberates us from the wages of sin, which is death. And he came and made vertical peace between us as, his, as God's people and God. And in that way, Jesus came to speak peace to all nations, offering forgiveness for anyone who would trust in the blood of this covenant. But the thing is, this prophecy is not yet totally fulfilled because, yes, the Messiah has come, and yes, the blood of the covenant has been shed. But this final judgment has not yet happened. The day of the Lord is not yet here. We remain a kind of prisoner and exile in this age as we await the Lord Jesus' second coming. And the thing is, that is a terrifying day for those who are not in Christ. Because at his first coming, the Lord Jesus faced the sword. At his second coming, he will wield it in judgment. But that day of fierce judgment for God's enemies is a day of rejoicing for us, for we will be set free from uh, the captors of this evil age. And we will enter into his presence of the new creation as shining jewels on the hills of his creation. So as we await that day, we await as exiles who are hopeful because we know what deliverance is coming. But let us not have expectations for this age that are not given to us. Let us not do as Israel did and seek to uh, invent our own ways in which God is going to uh, return and, and judge. We've got very clear teaching in the New Testament that we do not know the day or the hour of his return. But yet we should live in light of the fact that he could come at any time. But let us rejoice greatly and shout aloud, for our King is not only coming, but has come and will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead and to bring us into the perfection of his holy realm. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we are a people of hope that our hope is in the Davidic King, the Lord Jesus, who is the Son of God and Son of David, and who speaks a word of peace that has first brought peace between uh, you and us, that we are your people and you are our God. And secondly, that this peace has been proclaimed to the nations, and we long for the day where your rule and reign is fully consummated so that we will gleam on the hills of the new creation. Until that day, we thank you that we have the Holy Spirit who is the down payment, the guarantee of that inheritance, and that he is as the spirit of promise 
our spirit of hope as well. And so we praise you and give you thanks for this great salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, uh, let us uh, stand now and uh, confess our faith together.